So page 939, Romans chapter 1. And I'll begin at verse 8, just underneath where it says, longing to go to Rome. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let me pray once more and then we'll look at that passage together. Father in heaven, we ask that your word would be a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. So be gracious to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a time to be born, a time to die, and death has dominated the headlines this week, understandably. The death of an individual, the death of a mother, a grandmother, a great-grandmother. But in many ways, I suspect... Uh, also, the, the death of someone who's emblematic of one world passing away. And we're not too sure if we prefer the new one. By which I don't mean King Charles. Uh, but rather, the, the generation that the Queen represented. Almost all the tributes, be they on the news or in the press, from family or from members of the public interviewed on the, on the mall or outside Balmoral, almost all the tributes talk about her service, her, her sense of duty. And that is something that is easily associated with her generation, isn't it? Often known as the greatest generation. Uh, she was someone who was very clear that what drove her was duty rather than self-fulfillment. Uh, She spoke about her responsibilities rather than her rights. And that's what I mean by uh, saying that in in some ways her passing feels, as it were, emblematic of one world passing. Uh, Her generation, I I guess our parents, well for many of us, our parents and our grandparents' generation, uh, depending on our age, knew what it was, particularly of course in the Second World War, knew what it was to, to lay down their own rights desires in order to serve others. I am not at all sure, speaking about my generation, I am not at all sure that we could do what they did. I'm not at all sure that culturally we are in the place where they were. We're so driven, aren't we, by self-fulfillment. We're so quick to speak about our rights 
I used to live in, in Derbyshire and I was involved in a school there. And it was a fascinating exercise when um, I, was, I was chair of the governing body there and they decided to redo the, the, the values, what we want to, to teach our children, not learn maths, learn English, but the kind of the morality, essentially, I suppose you'd call it. And the change was from a set of values that we were all about, I will put others first, in other words, I will serve, to I will fulfill my potential. I will be true to myself. In other words, my rights, not my responsibilities. And yet the Queen, remarkably, was servant-hearted. Top of the pile. Couldn't be wealthier, more privileged. But she understood her role to be one of service. At a coronation, these words have been quoted lots recently, or sorry, as as she became queen in 1947, I declare before you, not coronation, but in her speech, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service. And then in her first Christmas broadcast, she asked the nation to pray that God may give me wisdom and strength to carry out the solemn promises I shall be making, that I may faithfully serve him and you all the days of my life. When the personal testimonies have come out, a few of them, particularly from those who knew her, uh, knew her personally, a few of them have revealed that in many ways she didn't want to be queen. Uh, uh, One of her goddaughters was saying uh, on the news the other night, she would have been far happier living in in the country with with a bunch of animals. Uh, Another one, someone who who painted her, her portrait, uh, revealed that she, she said to him as, as she was being painted, as a little girl, I used to look out the windows of Buckingham Palace at the people walking up and down the mall and think, I wonder where they're going. I wonder what they're doing. But she knew she was stuck. She could never do that. She could have a, never have a normal life. Instead, she gave herself to service. So one historian said this this week, Queen Elizabeth's crown may not have been one of thorns, but its burden was nevertheless still barbed and weighty. A thousand photographers waited in earnest for any sign of annoyance, exasperation, arrogance, vanity or aloofness. And yet in years and years, none came. It was, I think, a remarkable thing for a public figure. She wasn't perfect by her own admission, but that is a remarkable thing for someone who's been at the forefront, perhaps the most famous person in the world, for seven decades. How was it possible? Well, she spoke of this. Again, her Christmas messages. This is the time of the year when we remember that God sent his only son to serve, not to be served. He restored love and service to the center of our lives in the person of Jesus Christ. Even God, the queen said in her Christmas message, came not to be served, but to serve. And during the COVID pandemic, just last year, uh, she spoke again of the centrality of her faith Uh, She acknowledged that that for many, the last few years had been a time of anxiety, of grief, and of weariness. But in that time, the gospel has brought hope to me, as it has has to many others throughout the ages. By the Queen's own admission, the Queen's own words, it was the message, the good news. That's what gospel means. It's not a style of music, children. We do have gospel music, don't we? But I don't think that's what the Queen's talking about. I'm not entirely sure she's into gospel music. Who knows? But it just means the good news. The good news of Jesus Christ, she said, is what has enabled me uh, to serve and is what inspired me to serve. And that is the link 
with a letter that we've just read. Uh, Paul, in that first section entitled Longing to Go to Rome, in those verses 8 through 15, it is, is desperate to share this gospel with the Romans. He's not in Rome. He's never been to Rome. He doesn't know the church. But, but he wants to get there to, to speak to them about the gospel. Uh, it's down there in verse 9. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Verse 11, I long to see you, then I may strengthen you. Uh, but I've been prevented, he says. Verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I'm desperate to come to you to speak to you, but I can't. I'm stuck. And so I'm going to write to you, says Paul. And it's going to be all about the gospel. And so I just want to spend some minutes this morning trying to unpack what it is that he's so excited about, why it is he's so desperate to come to Rome and preach this gospel, this good news that motivates him and indeed inspired the queen. Two things very simply is we're going to look really at the, the two sentences under the righteous shall live by faith, verses 16 and 17, the small, letter, small numbers, uh, which are a bit like the, you know when you write an email and you put a subject in, just to sort of, you know, what it's about, jobs for Monday or whatever. They're like a summary of what the rest of the letter is going to be about, getting a taste of the rest of the letter. And he's going to ask us two questions. First of all, in verse 16, Paul says, if, if you, you'll know you understand the gospel, this central message of Christianity, when you can answer the question, is it shaming or saving? Is it shaming or saving? It's a slightly unusual start, isn't it? Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the Christian message. You want to say, well, why would you be poor? And actually, if Paul's message, if the gospel, if the news of Christianity was something that just went down really well with everybody straight away, then there'd be no reason to be ashamed. Children, what would you think if I walked in and said to you, morning, nice to meet you, I'm not ashamed of having brown hair? That's nice and a bit weird. Why would you be? I happen to know that one member of our congregation is in the top 1% of Taylor Swift listeners on Spotify in the last year. Now, I don't know how many million Taylor Swift listeners there are, but she apparently is not ashamed of this fact. I'm not going to name and shame her, especially if she was up here with a baptism earlier. (laughs) But she's not ashamed of the fact. Why would you be? Why would you be? But there are some things that we do naturally feel shame about, aren't there? Even if we don't necessarily think they're wrong. Some political opinions are just more socially acceptable than others. It is much easier, I suspect, in most of your workplaces, it is much easier to walk in and say you are anti-Brexit than it would be to say you're pro-Brexit. Even though the vote went the other way, somehow one has become kind of socially acceptable and one hasn't. We know what it is to feel shame. And, gospel, and Paul says, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which instantly tells us that there would be a danger that we could be. Why would we be ashamed, embarrassed about the Christian faith? Well, there would be no shame if Paul was just about to explain a whole bunch of morality. If Paul's letter to the Romans, if the Christian faith was just, we need to love everybody, guys, then there'd be no risk of shame, would there? Who's going to object to that? If Paul's letter, if the gospel, if the Christian faith was just going to be one more religion on the shelf. Hey, you guys have got Zeus, you guys have got Jupiter, 
Let, let me chuck in Jesus, another one for you. There'd be no shame. No one would mind, no one would care. If Paul's letter was our kind of modern religion, follow your heart, be true to yourself. Be kind. Live, laugh, love, whatever those signs say. But then again, no one would mind. There'd be no danger of shame. But that's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not a religion of do more, try harder. Nor is it kind of sort of modern pop psychology of follow what's within. The gospel, says Paul, is about the Son of God, verse 9. It is the gospel of his Son. It is the message about Jesus Christ. And he's not unpacked it yet because you can do that in the rest of the letter. But even just the trailer should be enough to begin to help us see why someone might be ashamed of the gospel. And if you're, you're new to, to Christianity, that, then it's quite possible, I think it's very likely actually, that Christianity is the most misunderstood of the major world religions in the UK at the moment. You are far more likely to have had clear teaching on Islam than you are on Christianity in school nowadays. It's not universal, obviously, but, it, but it's very, very likely. The Christian message, the gospel, is all about God's son. God's son who came to earth. And instantly you you can start feeling people squirm, can't you? Seriously, Paul, you believe in God. That's a bit odd. You believe he's got a son. Okay. A son who came to earth and became a man. Right. Who was born where? Born in Bethlehem. This little backwater, middle of nowhere. I was tempted to pick a place there, but it's just going to get me in trouble, isn't it, by way of illustration? <laughs> Stop myself just in time. He was born and put in a cattle trough. God's son, a baby. Uh, he grew up basically irrelevant for 30 years. We don't know anything about him. And then for about three years, he wandered around a, a dusty Middle Eastern country, backwater of the empire, that no one cares about, most people haven't heard of. He managed to persuade 12 people to follow him, one of whom then betrayed him. And eventually, the local leaders and the governing authorities, the Romans, got fed up with him and crucified him, stripped him naked, whipped him, put a crown of thorns on his head to mock him, pinned him to a piece of wood. He suffocated. He died. Paul says, yep, that is the best news in the world. And you can see why there might be a temptation to shame. That is the centre of the Christian faith. The life, death, and indeed the resurrection of Jesus. Not some list of rules. Not some pop psychology. Why is he not ashamed? Well, he says why not. Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's power to be saved, says Paul. And again, our hackles go up. Who says I need saving, Paul? Save from what? I'm fine, thanks very much. Who are you to tell me I need saving? I mean, what is he talking about? It's there at the end of verse 17. The righteous shall live by faith. When he says live there, he means have eternal life. Paul says the secret to eternal life is found in this message of Jesus' death and resurrection. Death is all around us, and we avoid it as best we can. And then every now and again, it jumps on us, and we just can't avoid it anymore. COVID did it. This last week has done it. And we react in all sorts of ways, don't we? For some of us, it's denial. Uh, um, Julian Barnes got a book, Arthur and George, about Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories. It's sort of fictional, but based on reality. And at one point, Arthur, 
Uh, Conan Doyle says, uh, they're sat around with the family, and he says, do you fear death? Uh, and his sister says, well, I can hardly like the idea, but I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. So Arthur gives a brief shake of the head. So your position could be summed up as wait and see. I suppose so, says his sister. Why? Dear Connor, your attitude to the eternal is so English. Ah, <laughs> oh, cross that bridge when I come to it. Will you? You sure? Is there a bridge? Wait and see. Brothers, we deny it by trying to just ward it off. I'll keep going to the gym. I'll eat healthy. I'll eat clean. I'll take the supplements. Makeup will cover the the wrinkles. If it won't, I'll go to surgery. I'll keep myself looking young, as if somehow I can stop the onward march of time. But we know we can't. It's just denial. The metronome keeps ticking. Children, when has your watch hand ever stopped going onwards, 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 and onwards? It just does. You can't halt time for one second. And time is marching us towards death. I realize that might not be what you wanted to hear when you came in this morning, but it is true, isn't it? And denial is not going to help us. For others, it's distraction. We can't deny it, so we distract ourselves. Um, Sales of clothes in New York went up massively after September the 11th, an absolute boom in consumer spending. Sociologists' explanation of it is people are so devastated by what's happened, can't cope with it, this mass death and destruction right on their doorstep in a place that's meant to be so safe. We don't know what to do. Let's spend. Or dilution. We pretend or we try and pretend death is no big deal. Have you seen the little Paddington picture going round? It was sweet, wasn't it? The, the, you know, the Jubilee and Paddington and the Queen, that's very sweet. And then sweet, there's been a, a cartoon that's, that's sort of done the rounds. Um, Paddington holding hands with the Queen, some bunting kind of trailing behind them, a couple of corbies, corgis walking off into the sunset. Thanks for everything, Mum. And it's kind of poignant and moving. But is Paddington Bear really waiting for you? The other side of death? I don't mean to be facetious, but when you close your eyes, is he there? To take you off to some very English afterlife? Back to Conan Doyle about his mother. So this, she presumes that after she dies, she'll go to a heaven whose exact nature she can't describe and remain there in a condition she can't imagine. Until Arthur, her son, comes to join her, followed in good order, of course, by their children, whereupon all of them will dwell together in a superior form of South Sea. It's very English, isn't it? It'll be all right. Of course it'll be okay. But it will come, won't it? Death will come. Paul knows that. That's why he's writing this letter. The Queen knew that. It will come. There is no avoiding it. And Paul's big concern is, it's not Paddington waiting for you. You won't cease to exist. It's not when I die, Rod. You close your eyes, you'll open them again the next second, and you'll be there before the Lord God Almighty. What will that be like? The Queen knew that her servant-heartedness was not going to be enough to get her through death. She said this, Although we're capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither philosopher 
nor a general, important though they are, but a saviour with the power to forgive. The queen knew she needed forgiveness. She wasn't an overtly wicked person. But she knew what she needed was forgiveness, and she knew where to find it in this gospel that she'd spoken about, in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is why Paul says this gospel is so powerful, because it is able to give you eternal life. Look, if you're a Christian, by the way, let me just say to you, just note what Paul says. There is the power. If you want to know where God's power is at work, it's in the gospel. We go all over the place looking for power. The, the latest conference, the latest kind of secret bit of knowledge, the latest speaker, the latest band. Paul says, just get back to the gospel. That's where you'll find real power. Why? Well, that's that last verse as we wrap up. Verse 17. After asking the question, do you see it as saving or shaming? Paul says to us, are you trying or are you trusting? Are you trying or are you trusting? Verse 17. Why can the gospel save? Why can this news save? Well, says Paul, for, because, verse 17, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God will be revealed. What, what does that mean? Well, God often in the Bible is described as righteous. And when God is described as righteous, it means he does the right thing. He is, if you like, holy. He is pure. But that can't be what Paul means here, because that is not good news for us in one sense. Because you and I, and her majesty the queen, we're not perfect and pure. So when Paul says this good news tells us about the righteousness of God, he's not talking about God being righteous. Rather, he's talking about a status that can be granted to us from God, the status of being righteous. All that means, children, is that you, you are right with God, that he says, yes, you are okay. I'm not holding your life against you. I'm not holding your greed against you. I'm not holding your sin against you. You are right with me. To put it really simply, you're okay. We're okay. It is a status. And it comes, says Paul, by faith. When he says it is from faith for faith, he's effectively saying it's, it's by faith from first to last. It's always faith. It's faith alone that grants you this status. He doesn't mean a generic faith. As long as you've got a faith in something, pick your God, Paddington Bear, whatever, that'll do. As long as you're sincere, that counts. No, he's saying faith in the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ, his life and his death in our place. As he'll go on to unpack in the rest of the letter. None of us have lived as we ought to have done. None of us ought to have been welcomed into heaven, but God so loved the world that he came down, sent his son, became man, and lived the life we should have lived. Jesus could be right with God because he actually was right with God. Never did anything wrong. And then he offered to swap places with his people. That's why he goes to the cross. Everything we deserve, the punishment we deserve, put on him who deserved nothing. Everything we don't deserve that Jesus earned, eternal life, a welcome into heaven, swapped and given to us. How? How do you become righteous? Not by trying, but by trusting. We are desperate triers. Uh, We think we can validate ourselves. You you might be someone who, who would say, well, I'm not religious. 
I'm not into this righteousness sort of stuff, but, but you are, inescapably so. We all are. We're all trying to validate ourselves, prove ourselves, be enough. We might be validating ourselves by a career. If my career goes well, then I'm okay. We can validate ourselves, try and make ourselves righteous, to use the language of Romans, by a, by a cause. As long as I've signed up to the right social justice issues, that shows I'm a good person. We validate ourselves through our parenting. Look at my children, aren't they good? That shows I'm okay. We're all desperate triers. One writer says, we're almost never not in church. We're always trying to prove ourselves. That's all Paul's talking about here. But he's talking about the really serious one, which is proving ourselves before God. And says he can't be done, but he's done it for you. Stop trying and instead trust. Last night, I was, I was coming back from Edinburgh yesterday, I was working in Edinburgh yesterday, came back, train got delayed. Um, I got switched onto the... The, the Saturday night train that was going to Blackpool. Wow. <laughs> it was carnage. It was carnage. In one sense, that would be the least religious place you could possibly imagine. Okay, everyone, I, I was basically dressed like this, trying to do some work. E- everybody else on the train is drinking. They're up dancing to ABBA on their mobile phones. It's just mayhem, utter mayhem. You'd look at that and think, that is not a religious place. I think Paul would say it's a totally religious place. Might not be Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, one of the kind of big five. But that is a carriage full of people who are desperately trying to prove themselves. I'm okay because I'm the wildest. I'm okay because I'm the drunkest. I'm okay because I'm the best looking. I'm okay because I'm the strongest. I'm okay because I'm the loudest. I'm okay because I'm the best dancers. Even in The Guardian, which is not a notoriously kind of pro-Christian paper, I came across an article where the, the author says this, for those of us who aren't already religious, it's tricky to know what to do about the fact we're always trying to prove ourselves. He's just read a Christian book. You surely can't will yourself to become a believer, he said. But the last line was really interesting. He'd read this Christian book about the fact that the gospel, the good news, is not about proving ourselves, but about accepting forgiveness from God that Christ has done for us his last line is this then again if you still haven't found what you're looking for it might be it might be a good start to give up searching in the wrong places if you find yourself driven to succeed and it's just not working is it you know you've never quite done enough there's always the anxiety the fear and you know that none of those things are to get you through death When, when you come to death's door your career your children your beauty, your intelligence, your wealth, they'll all be taken out of your hand one by one. None of them are going to get you through. You might have the crown and the scepter. You might be head of the Church of England. You might have five castles and goodness knows how many country houses. But still, they will be taken out of your hands. But says Paul, it's okay. It can be okay. Because you don't need to prove yourselves God's answer to our failure is not to tut-tut and drive us away, but to say, come and trust Jesus, who has done it all for you. Stop trying and start trusting. As one old hymn puts it, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. It's the doing that's deadly. Be it really religious doing, Look how prayerful I am. Look how spiritual I am. Look how Christian I am. 
albeit very secular looking doing. Look how beautiful, wealthy, successful I am. None of it works, but it doesn't need to. Paul says, I have good news. It might sound shameful, it might sound ridiculous. But it's actually transformed the world, hasn't it? At the moment, 2.3 billion people professing to be Christians. From children in the slums, we had a photo from a, a friend working in, in Nairobi this week of a child, a young boy, looks about eight or nine. His whole house burnt down, lost, gone, lives in the slum. He's just standing there in the, in the rubble. And my friend said, this little boy is still faithful, trust God. Doesn't know why it's happened, who does? Trust God. Through to professors at Oxford, all the brains in the world. Her Majesty the Queen. <laughs> Whatever the status, giving the same answer. Not me, but him. It's not that I've tried hard enough and succeeded, but he's done it for me. And let me just say, as we, as we do wrap up, you might have been a Christian many, many years. It takes so long for this to sink in, to stop thinking that it's the trying that matters. Uh, C.S. Lewis perhaps the most famous Christian author of the last hundred years or so. He wrote a letter to a lady called Mary Shelburne in 1958. He said this, I'd been a Christian for many years before I really believed in the forgiveness of sins, or more strictly, before my theoretical belief became a reality to me. He wrote that in 1958. By this stage, he'd written Mere Christianity, which is probably his, most, his best-selling book, all about trying to persuade people during the war to become Christians. He'd written the Narnia books, the most famous allegories of the Christian faith, probably certainly written in the last two, three hundred years. He'd already written those things. He was already a Christian. But isn't it interesting? I'd been a Christian for many years before I really believed in the forgiveness of sins. And then he kind of corrects himself, or more strictly, I, I did believe. He wasn't saying I'm not a Christian when I wrote Narnia or mere Christianity. More strictly, before my theoretical belief became a reality to me. Lay your deadly doing down, Paul says and stand in Jesus, complete. That offer is open to all, to Jew and Gentile, he says. It just means the whole world. That's why you don't have to go through a long period of earning your place before you become a Christian. Jesus says to everyone here this morning, God says to everyone this morning, just come, ask for forgiveness, trust Jesus, not yourself, and I will welcome you. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that we can lay our deadly doing down, that you're full of love and mercy, and that you promise that all who come to you in Christ's name will receive pardon. So grant us faith and repentance. Grant us the gift not of trusting in ourselves, but of trusting in him. And we pray, therefore, that when our final day does come, when our last breath uh, escapes our lips, when our eyes close for the last time, that we might rest in peace and rise in glory. Bless us in this way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.